The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Crystal Presley. Crystal Presley is the Ph.D., is the founder of United Children of Veterans, UnitedChildrenOfVeterans.com, a website that provides resources on post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, Crystal's new book is a is 30 Days with My Father. This is the title of the new book, Finding Peace from Wartime PTSD. Uh, it is described as a moving personal journey of the devastating effects of the Vietnam War had on a family, her family, when her father returned home with PTSD after the Vietnam War in 1970. This memoir reveals how one daughter, Crystal, and her soldier dad, Faced their demons of post-war trauma in a series of 30-day conversations. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Crystal. Thanks for having me. So that's quite a moving story and one that's obviously not just for returning Vietnam vets, but it applies to returning vets now. It's very timely, Afghanistan, Iraq. Um, let's talk first about what and, and describe what PTSD is and then how it relates to you and your family and your relationship with your dad. Well, PTSD is an acronym. It first became recognized by the medical community and actually put in the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual for Mental Health, the DSM, in the early 80s. And the acronym itself means post-traumatic stress disorder. And Basically, in layman's terms, what that means is if you've experienced any kind of trauma, it doesn't have to be just a war trauma. It could be rape. It could be emotional abuse. It could be so many different things. It could be a car accident, for example. And there are certain things later on, long after the trauma has passed, that can trigger flashbacks, um, anger, numbness, it's almost like being caught in the past, but you're in the present. Now, that's easy to or it's understandable when you're talking about your father was a Vietnam vet, um, and he returns home after a year, and all of the symptoms that you describe, I guess, is, are, are, is common, unfortunately, for soldiers returning home from these devastating wars. But your book or your memoir focuses on you and your relationship with your father and that there is something called intergenerational PTSD. What is that? That's right. So it's called different names. It's called intergenerational PTSD. It's called secondary PTSD. It's also called vicarious trauma. And these are terms that have long been recognized by the mental health community, but they aren't actually diagnosable terms. So you couldn't go to a psychiatrist or any kind of psychotherapist and actually receive this 
you know, a diagnosis of, of any of this. But these are terms that are very well understood that can happen to a person. In, in my situation, I was living with somebody, my father, who was experiencing severe symptoms of PTSD all through my childhood. And I built a lot of my coping mechanisms based on what my father's coping mechanisms were because I didn't know any difference. For example, when there was any kind of minor stressor that my dad just couldn't deal with, he would lock himself in his room. He would get really depressed, anxiety-ridden. He would vacillate between depression and rage. And I found myself doing the same thing. I also began to walk on eggshells around my father and I never, you know, my, my dad never threatened to kill me or, or never tried to kill me or anything like that. But I do have to tell you that during my childhood, I did fear for my life being around my father because his symptoms of PTSD made his mood so erratic and he was so often just aggressive in general and unpredictable that I never knew what was going to happen. And so because I was around that, I also experienced symptoms of my own of post-traumatic stress disorder. And what was first of all, I'm going to ask you what are some of your what were some of the symptoms that that you were expressing or that you you know some of the behaviors that reflected you that you were suffering from the same thing as your father? So many of my father's symptoms, actually, like my father, I was deeply depressed as as a young child, very anxiety ridden, very socially inept. I just I couldn't make friends. I didn't want to make friends actually, because I didn't want to be close to people. I felt emotionally numb, very distant from people. Like my dad, I also vacillated between depression and rage. My moods were also very erratic. It didn't take much to set me off. And um, Do you think I was also typical? very hypersensitive. Crystal, do you think in your experience, because now you've had a lot of experience, obviously, besides writing the memoir, but you've established this... Uh, uh, the Children of uh, Veterans, this website, um, do you think this is typical? Is this something that's typical of children and families who have vets coming back who suffer from PTSD? I mean, typical, let's say, of the, and I, I mentioned the Afghan uh, or the soldiers who have been in Afghanistan or Iraq. Do, is this a typical family situation, would you say, or has that been your experience? It has been now, but, you know, when I wrote this book and when I was getting to know my father and I hadn't spoken to him for years and years because of all these symptoms that I never understood, I was very estranged from him. Back then, three years ago, I would have said, this is my story and I'm the only person in the world who this has happened to because all of this that was happening was a secret. My family wasn't talking about it internally. We weren't talking about it certainly with anybody else. And so what happened was when I wrote this book, I started receiving first tens of emails, then hundreds, then thousands of emails from people, adult veterans or adult children of veterans from World War II, from the Korean War, from, of course, the Vietnam War, from the War of Desert Storm, people saying, this is my story, too. This happened to me, too, but I've been afraid to tell anybody about it. And then I had just a profound experience the other day. I was eating lunch with a woman who is married to a Viet uh, not a Vietnam veteran, a, um, a veteran from the war in Iraq. 
and he is 32 years old. He's permanently disabled from TBI, that's traumatic brain injury, and PTSD. He will never work again. And she had asked me at the last minute if her daughter could come along. She's nine years old. And that child was busily playing on her iPad the whole time. And at the end, looked up this kid who's, again, nine years old, and said to me, Miss Crystal, I hear your dad was in a war, too. And I thought, whoa, where is this going? And she said, you know, my dad was in Iraq. And I said, I did know that, Caitlin, and I'm really glad he's back. And then Caitlin looked up again, and she said, Miss Crystal, were you afraid of your dad the way I'm afraid of mine? Because when my dad gets really angry, he yells and he locks himself in his room. So I just go lock myself in mine. And I just, I almost burst out crying. I thought, wow, this, this, this is a huge problem. And these kids don't even have voices yet. Not only do they not have voices, and when you're telling the story, I feel like crying. I'm thinking about the mothers and, and mostly it is mothers because they're the ones who are at home. Um, like what's their responsibility and their role in it? Here you're sitting with this mother and her daughter, and like you said, your mother, I'm using the word covered up, you know, everything, nobody, everybody's embarrassed or ashamed, and every, and, and, you know, you want to make as if everything is fine and it's not. Um, and, and do you think a lot of mothers, well, the one that you were talking to is doing the same, maybe not doing the same since this little girl was able to express her feelings. Yeah, I definitely don't think in this situation that anything was covered up. This is a family that at least they're very openly talking about things, which is something that I never had when I was growing up. And I think that, you know, I've talked to Caitlin after that, and I've talked to her mother after that. And the fact that they're just able to talk about very openly all the things that are happening in the household and all the things that everybody is feeling has really made a world of difference for them. But I do think this is, unfortunately, quite a typical situation. And I think that we're in a time where we're hearing a lot about PTSD and TBI, and, and that's great. I'm so glad we're hearing so much about it because it's raised public awareness. And at the same time, we're hearing about it in terms of only the veterans themselves. I think that we're missing this whole other big piece of, well, what's happening to the families? What's happening to the children in particular? Yeah. Well, it's a family. It's a family issue. It's a family problem. I mean, this gives, I think, way to the fact that when vets come home and, and if they are and, and diagnosed with suffering from PTSD, the family is suffering. Is what you're saying? Everybody needs to needs counseling. Everybody needs maybe therapy. Everybody in the family has to be involved. It's not just the individual. But you know, Crystal, as I was online and looking at your website, I was also thinking the media plays into this too because, you know, the picture is the father comes home and they, they play all these things where the dad's coming home from Afghanistan or Iraq and he goes into the elementary school and surprises the daughter or the son and everybody's hugging and kissing and it's all this, the hero returning and nobody wants to talk about the real stuff underneath. So we kind of play on that, I think. The media does it and just maybe we, as a as a culture. That's true. And one of the things that I'm hoping that my book will do is really give people an inside perspective of what can happen when a soldier comes home and what can happen to families, especially when a soldier comes home. You know, we're hearing again so much about PTSD and people know, I mean, almost everybody now knows what that is. And that's a wonderful thing because that certainly wasn't true 10 or 20 years ago. 
Um, but, but I also think that it step. doesn't it doesn't mean things to people. It, it's just a term. It's just an acronym. And so I want to give people a story so they can really relate to it and understand and empathize and care. I think one of the things that stands out in your book, in your memoir, or just maybe as you as a person, Crystal, because you're suffering, you were cutting yourself, you were hypersensitive, you had all the symptoms of PTSD, but at the same time, your own cover-up or the family's cover-up, you were smart, you end up getting, what, a master's degree, a PhD, so you're outwardly you're doing all this these good things, the stuff that's acceptable by society, and yet you're suffering inside, and I think that, that cover-up is probably more common than not. I think it is. I think there are certain things that would categorize somebody as being at risk, and I didn't have any of those traditional kind of things that 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 would really pinpoint me as somebody to really talk to, to ask questions to. I mean, like you said, I made good grades. I've been fairly successful. I really stayed off the radar for years and years. And so I wasn't somebody who a teacher would have called home about necessarily because my grades were just awful. I wasn't somebody who made a lot of trouble for myself at school, who would have gotten called into the principal's office often. And so nobody really knew what was happening in my house, and I wasn't saying anything. I mean, nobody talked about Vietnam back then. Nobody talked about PTSD, certainly. And we were a very conservative family living in rural Appalachia. You were supposed to be perfect. You didn't want people to know about your problems. Well, and I think, uh, unfortunately, I think some of that still resonates today. We're supposed to be happy. We have this all this happy stuff, right? And we don't want to talk about the stuff that really isn't working because, and, and I think there's a lot of shame involved somehow. That word keeps coming up. But one of the things, when I went on your website and you were talking about all the res- the responses that you were surprised that you were getting from people who had, and families of, of those who had, had um, loved ones in the Afghanistan, Iraq, but also Holocaust victims as well, one of those responses to your um, what memoir came, uh, I, I resonates with me. I mean that that too. That's that the intergenerational part of that. That that children of survivors of the Holocaust also suffer from this very same kind of thing. So it's not just well that is a result of the war, but any of these kinds of very traumatic situations. This whole post generational. I think it's really important. I keep bringing that up. I use that word. You said there are other terms, but. Because um, we really don't think about that in terms of the the family, and that it that all of this affects the whole family. I guess as a social worker, that's why I keep focusing on this. Because you you never see a person in a family really isn't his or her problems aren't isolated from the rest of the family. It affects the whole system. I use the word system. Absolutely, it certainly does. You know, and if if a person is experiencing or has experienced a trauma and never works through that trauma and lives in denial, it always comes back. And it doesn't just keep affecting that particular person. It affects everybody that person comes in contact with, especially those closest to him or her. Now, you wrote this book. Okay, you obviously, you left at age 18 because you had had it or you were ready to leave. And you left and you were, what, for 13 years almost, you had very little contact with your dad. And then what prompted you to say, okay, I'm going to write this memoir. I want to reconnect with him. I want to know what the story is. So 30 days with my father. 
um, was the result of that. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. Well, at that point, I had had years and years of therapy. So I'd been in therapy since I was 18, and it had been, for the most part, really good therapy. And so I had healed a lot already, even though I didn't have much of a, much of a relationship with my father. And I felt like when I looked over my, my life that I should be a happier person than what I was. I was in a, you know, a, a pretty positive relationship at the time. I had a house. I had a very high-paying job in Atlanta. I had a support group of, of friends. I had all this education, and I was very spiritually grounded. And I just kept thinking to myself, I should be happier. I mean, I am reflective enough to know that this just doesn't make sense, that a person who has all these things and who has come this far and who is this reflective doesn't feel 100% fulfilled. Something's wrong. So I started reflecting on that, and, of course, everything, like it always did, always went back to my dad and my lack of a relationship with him. And I reached out to my dad because I just didn't know what else to do. I kind of saw it as my final straw in trying to fill this missing piece, this void in my heart and in my soul that I had never been able to fill any other way. And I also realized at the time that there were things about my childhood that I still didn't understand, that no matter how much therapy I had and no matter how hard I tried or how reflective I was, I still couldn't piece those things together. So I needed to talk to my father to figure out what happened to him back then because it was important to understanding what happened to me. Uh, so you did this, and he, I think, obviously uh, said, okay, I'm willing to do this to sit down with you and to talk with you, uh, which may not have been the case necessarily, but it was for you. So why did you say just 30 days? Why did you just give it 30 days with my father? Why not a year? Well, I knew that there was the potential this project would go horribly awry. I knew that my dad still had PTSD. I had PTSD. And I knew that from these conversations I'd had with my mother over the years that my dad still had very erratic behavior sometimes. And I just didn't know what he would do, what he would say. Maybe this project would be more of a setback than anything else. So I figured I needed to give this a time limit, that that would be the healthiest thing to do. One of my former therapists had always said to me, you know, when we introduce a, a medication for you or any kind of intervention, whether it's meditation, yoga, whatever, you have to try it for 30 days. You know, you can commit to something for 30 days. And so that really was the, the premise behind the whole concept is if the project went awry, I would stick in there for 30 days because I knew I could commit that much time. Well, you did stick in there for 30 days. And so what happened? The results, the relationship with you between you and your father. What's it like now, today? You know, the project was really hard, but it was it ended up being the most profound 30 days of my life and, and ever since then has been too because over that period of time, although my dad was slow sometimes to talk about things, he finally opened up to me and I understood him. I stopped seeing not only my father, but I stopped seeing both of my parents as these people who were supposed to be perfect and do all the right things and, and know everything. At 30, I still had that mentality about them. And I think I really grew up during those 30 days. I was able to see my father especially as 
a young kid who was 18 who got a draft letter in the mail. He had never heard of Vietnam. He didn't even have a TV back then. And so suddenly he was shipped off to fight in a war he didn't understand to a place he never knew existed. And he was never really whole after that. It was as if he could never really get back here somehow. And I really got that about him. And it helped me put all the things that had happened in my childhood just in a different light. Just to hear my dad say that he wasn't hiding away from me because he hated me. And I always thought he did. That he was hiding locked away in his room from my mom and me because he was trying to protect us from him. That just, that was such a shape shifter in my mind. It changed everything for me. It was a completely different way of looking at the of what was happening of the of the behavior. That's I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, it sounds like you. Um, I mean, that was a shape changer or a shift changer. You began to understand his pain. I guess. I mean, that's what I hear you saying. I mean, you realized how much pain he was in. Um, what would you suggest? Because now you started this website, obviously as a result of your own experiences, uh, United Children of Veterans. So what is the purpose of the website? What do you want, how do you want to help people? I mean, you know, the families, the children, et cetera. And if anybody is listening who thinks that they need these services, what do they do and how do they get a handle on it? Well, the website is really, right now, it's just a place to go to find resources. If you want to know more about how PTSD can affect children of veterans, then it's a good place to go because it, rather than doing a Google search where you have to sort through so many different things before you find anything. And and the research out there on intergenerational PTSD is just so sporadic. It's a place that pulls all that research together. So it has qualitative research, quantitative research for your, your researchers out there. It has, if you just want personal stories about people who are affected, adult children of veterans, it has that as well. And I'm actually getting ready to revamp the website in the next month, and it will have a component where you can go online and there will, there will be a forum where you can actually talk to other people who are experiencing the same symptoms. I, I'm not alone. I, it, I mean, that has to be really, uh, I mean, when you can go online and you can hear other people's stories and connect with them, I mean, that in itself, just being able to share a story and someone really understands what you're going through. But, Crystal, what, where, what is the VA doing? What, is the VA, what are the VA hospitals doing? And, and do you have any connection with them? I don't. Um, I know that they're doing more now than they ever have for veterans, but there's such a missing piece for the families. I mean, I read about it every day, and obviously you do too, but every day we have soldiers coming home and committing suicide, and I, I think the, the statistics are getting worse, not better. That's right. I yeah. wish I had answers for you, but I think there's still definitely a stigma behind PTSD. Even though we're hearing it all the time in the media, I think it gives this perception that perhaps the veterans and their families are actually talking about it and from my experience that is still not the case why do you think there's a stigma is it because we're supposed to think of these men and women as as heroes or heroines and it's not and and that they should be able to come back and um, be strong and and all of those is that why we 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 don't seem to want to deal with the issues or to talk about ptsd 
I think that's one reason. Another reason is because, I mean, if you look at the name itself, post-traumatic stress disorder, if you have a disorder, I mean, a lot of people, myself included, think the name should be changed to injury because that's a better reflection of what it actually is. But if you have a term that has the word disorder in it, that already makes it a negative connotation. I mean, without you having to do anything else. That's like being well, diagnosed with bipolar. Crystal, don't you think it implies that you are, there's something wrong with you and it doesn't take into, into, um, into account the fact that what you've been subjected to, to this horrendous situation in, in war. And so the disorder does kind of imply you have a disorder, that the individual has a problem. There is something to be ashamed about. There's something wrong with you. That's exactly right. So how much chance do you think does one have to change that, to change that? You said you think the definition should be changed, and there are others who think that too. Where do you go to to get this definition changed? Who do you reach out to? Well, Dr. Frank Ockberg, who has been involved in the PTSD community for years and years, a very famous psychiatrist, and he actually helped coin the term PTSD back in the early 80s. He is on this crusade right now, which I really, really believe in, to have the name changed. Now, I don't know how personally to do it, but I know that he does. And he actually has a website. I can't remember what it is right now, but if you Google post-traumatic stress injury, it's one of the first things that will come up. And you can actually sign a petition to get this name changed. So you... You have um, reconnected with your father. Uh, your mother, I assume, is still alive. How has this brought the family together, or has it? Or, you know, what have been the results of your writing this book and, and, and making this connection? Well, my family and I, we talk all the time now. We don't talk about the war like we did during those 30 days, but things are definitely more open and honest and authentic than they've ever been between us. And it's almost as if this, mass inside of everybody that was this big secret that nobody was allowed to to say or talk about has just been removed from everybody's body. And so I have a much better relationship with my parents now. And secrets can destroy families. Uh, it's what's not said that usually destroys families, not what is said, you know, when you get this out in the open. Uh, I, I want to mention, we have a couple more minutes left, just want to mention your book again because you can get this book on Amazon.com and apparently it's already number one on Amazon's list of bestsellers, 30 Days with My Father, Find Peace from Wartime, PTSD. Um, so you're, there's obviously a lot of interest in this kind in, in PTSD in your book, number one. Congratulations, that's great. Thank you so much. And really, you know, it's more than a story about PTSD. I think that it, it has such a bigger audience now because people are relating to it from the perspective of just a relationship between a father and a daughter and a family that was very broken who find, we, you know, we found a way to come back together again. And that's such a universal topic. Well, Crystal, you found the way to come back together again. I mean, you put yourself out there. And I think that's pretty scary for kids. I think sometimes you grow up and, and you're a very competent person, easy for you to stay away and just continue, you know, blaming your dad and you're a grown up and you'll just deal with that. But I mean, you're the one who took the risk, the emotional risk. So I, I have to congratulate you 
Um, I think you're an example, and I guess you are an example. You are, and we didn't mention this. You did mention teaching, I guess, but an instructional mentor teacher in Atlanta Public Schools. That's right. So you are a mentor. You are a teacher, and you did reach out, and and um, it, it's a great story, a painful story, but it's a really good story. I mean, and, and uh, United Children of veterans.com is the website where you can find out more about Crystal Presley, Ph.D., and author of 30 Days with My Father. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. Uh, we're going to take a short break now because my next guest is here, David Bedrick. David is author of Talking Back to Dr. Phil. If anyone isn't afraid of talking back to Dr. Phil, it's David Bedrick. Um, Talking back to Dr. Phil, and the subtitle is Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is David Bedrick. He is author of Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology. And uh, he is a counselor, an educator, and attorney, and obviously an author. Uh, our quick-fix society, says David, wants instant answers to the things that ail us, weight problems, anxiety, depression, marital conflicts, and too often we turn to the experts of pop psychology to tell us how to ease the pain. We have come to confuse genuine, he says, emotional help with sugar-coated panaceas meant to make us feel good for the moment. And he says, is this any way to heal a nation? Well, welcome to the show. You have to answer that question, David. Nice to have you on the show this morning. 
Nice to be here with you. Thanks. Okay. So I guess that, I mean, I'm assuming this is not the way for us to heal a nation. Um, talking back to Dr. Phil, why Dr. Phil? I chose Dr. Phil really as a straw man uh, for a kind of psychological thinking. He He's not my enemy, and, and I don't have a personal uh, gripe with him. But the way he thinks and presents, at least the way he presents psychology on his show, uh, is very much the way many people think, many psychologists, and many of us. For instance, Dr. Phil likes to say, what are you thinking? As if people do things that they do or have addictions or or have anger problems or have conflicts because they're just screwed up in some way or they're thinking poorly and we could flip a switch and they wouldn't do that anymore. But many of us think that about ourselves. In a way, we all practice psychology on ourselves. We self-reflect. I'm a procrastinator. I'm depressed. I'm whatever. We label ourselves. And often that kind of psychology, similar to what Dr. Phil does on the show, is ineffective and shaming, actually. It is ineffective and shaming. And I guess what you're saying, Dr. Phil, is he main, would you call him mainstream psychology versus what you're espousing I, in reading your book, Love Psychology, which you have to give a definition of that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that, that's mainstream psychology. Mainstream psychology is what many therapists practice, but like, as I was implying, not just therapists, it's what we've all learned to practice on ourselves, on each other. We all think psychologically about things, and we tend to think in this, what are you thinking? And uh, if I could change your mind about it, if I can convince you smoking was bad, you would stop, right? <laughs> and and we all know that very rarely works. So, um, Well, Dave, is I, that blaming the victim? Is that what we're talking about? Like somebody comes in with, an, you mentioned, okay, people who are overweight, people who have addiction problems, um, you know, su- substance abuse, domestic violence, all the issues of today, and that uh, when they go into a therapist in mainstream psychology, Dr. Phil psychology, we tend to, are we blaming the victim? It's your fault if you would only just stop eating and we're going to tell you how to stop and start dieting or we're going to tell you how to, you have to just, just say no to drugs kind of thing. And we don't, as I understand it, you're saying, we don't really look at the person in the context of his family or what's happening to him or the greater society and why he's, he or she's behaving that way? Well, that's, you said a mouthful there. There's, a, there's <laughs> so many things that you said that are really important. Yes, is there a blaming the victim? In many, in many situations, yes. There's a, uh, at least in that mainstream way, whether it's a doctor field or inside ourselves, we kind of criticize ourselves, thinking that self-criticism or other criticism is going to change us. It's kind of blame some part of us that's struggling. And uh, if it helped, I'd say, okay, let's do a little more blaming. But it tends not. It almost never does. The truth of it is. So, um, But yes, and then other issues you're mentioning, things like weight loss, let's say, which I, I write a fair amount about. Um, there's a notion that we can tell people uh, something like, be disciplined, exercise, and eat differently, and maybe change your lifestyle a little bit. But the truth is about 5%, maybe 10 at most, says the research, <clears throat> excuse me, of the people are helped by any kind of diet strategy. It's a $60 billion industry with about a 5% success record. 5% meaning some people can lose weight in a short period of time. But sustaining anything like that, any kind of weight loss, very few people do it. So we have a whole industry that's trying to do something that's ineffective. Why? 
what are they what are they what are they missing what are we missing so, so what I mean. are we missing let's take your perspective you know okay that's what we're it's not working as you're saying i mean it's working in terms of a lot of people making a lot of money because it's a big right. 60 billion dollars a year i assume but okay so it doesn't work so then love psychology how would that work somebody comes into uh, to see the therapist and they're 100 pounds overweight and so let's take i, I always think that giving examples is a good way and so we have weight loss. That's one thing. What do you do? How would you? Do, what's the approach using? Am I using the right term? Love psychology, or if if we can't sort of criticize, shame people, confront people into dieting and exercising, as it were, uh, what can we do? What is a love-based psychology? Uh, my approach, and okay. uh, I, I was going to. I'm I'm thinking three things, Catherine. One is some basic sense of compassion for for the person. And what I mean by that is if a person comes into my office and is overweight and wants to change that, the odds are highly, highly likely that they are incredibly self-critical, that they look in the mirror or step on a bathroom scale or put on their clothes and have thoughts that are not just, ooh, I wish I lost some weight. They're probably rather harsh uh, and cold and mean-spirited. If you listen to the thoughts in people's heads, they're incredibly mean and, and awful. So compassion means that if a person comes to see me and says, I want to lose weight, I want to first have a feeling for what they're experiencing. They may be putting themselves down incredibly roughly, and nobody is reacting to that, saying, oh, my gosh, living inside of your mind, body, psyche is a rather painful thing and feeling for that. Otherwise, a person continues to criticize themselves sometimes unconsciously, and that doesn't help them lose weight. So that would be the first thing that would be really important to me. All right. So that's step number one. That would be step number one. And step number two? The first thing, step number two is to treat people what I call like subjects, not like objects. So what I mean by that is I assume that a person is having an experience with what they're doing. So let's say a person, a person came to me uh, not too long ago and said, I want to lose weight, I need to stop. Uh, eating the things I eat. And I said, what were the things you want to stop eating? She said, I drink caramel lattes. I drink one or two a day. They have, I don't know, some hundreds, 600, 700 calories. I'm making that up. I'm not remembering the exact number. And I need to stop doing that. So I'm, this, I'm thinking from a love-based approach, I think I really want to know what her experience is of caramel lattes before I try to yank them away from her, being she's tried to do that many times before and been unsuccessful, I would like to know what that is. So with this particular person, I, I put a cup, a plastic bottle in front of me, and I said, Can you, do you know how much you want those caramel lattes when you, when you go out to get them? Yes. Could you grab that cup with that energy? This is your desire. So she grabs the cup, and I grab the cup, and I say, I'm going to put you on a diet program. I'm taking these away from you. So I pull the cup, and I say, now you fight back with how much you want those things. The reason I'm doing that is because I want to know what it's like inside of her. That she's a subject. She's not an object. She's having an experience. I want to know what that experience is. So she starts pulling on the cup. I start pulling on the cup. We're fooling around at the beginning, but it gets quite serious. And I say, you can't have it. She said, I want it. And we, after a couple of minutes, we're fighting back and forth. And I say, what do you want so bad? She says, my happiness. Mm. Well, I learned something that I didn't know before. And I asked her later about her happiness, and she said she was wanting to go back to school. She was in a marriage where her husband didn't want her to have a career, and that would have made her happy. So in a lot of ways, this is interesting, Catherine, she needed to grab her happiness more. You could say she was practicing with the caramel lattes in a way, 
maybe so not. So what the best you way. kind of find out what the caramel latte means to her, whatever that's, that is. That's right. It means yeah. something to her, and it means different things for different people. Some people say, "Oh, it's, everyone wants comfort. Everyone wants." Uh, they're self-medicating. Those terms are almost never useful. People have n- unique reasons to them that they do things, but they're unknown. So if you ask a person, why do you eat french fries? They'll say, oh, it makes me relax or it comforts me. Or, But if you actually explored from a love-based approach what their experience was, you would find out something, and I guarantee it would not be one of those names, none of those labels that they've already used. Well, as you're describing this, it kind of goes back to, I don't know if it's Jungian, but I mean, Dr. Phil is kind of like the pop psychology, or I would call him a pop psychologist. But when you go way back to the, even the the Freudian kinds of stuff, it's more like, as you're describing, understanding what this all means to the person, what, you know, taking drugs or eating caramel lattes, which sounds pretty good right now, but it's like, (laughs) yeah. Um, What that means to that, that person and, isn't that true a little bit? I mean, like, you know, I mean, you don't have to have years and years of psychoanalysis. I mean, that's old school. But still, it's, it's kind of related to that, the, your, your love psychology. Very, very much yeah. so. My, 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 one of my roots is in Jungian analysis, and, I, and one of my teachers was a, a Jungian analyst, and I studied in Zurich for many years uh, uh, afterwards with that person and, and somewhat, sometime in Zurich, uh, Jungian analysis. And one of the things I take from that is exactly what you're saying, that there is meaning. People don't do things because they're stupid. Now, not, not, not that I shouldn't call my friends stupid if I'm pissed with them, but that's yeah. not a psychological analysis, right? That's yeah. just me being pissed with a person. But what Jung said, there's a meaning behind what people do. That means there's an intelligence built into it. You could say reaching for that methamphetamine is not smart. We understand that it's not good for my body, probably my relationships, probably my finances, all kinds of things. But yet, yet there is an underlying intelligence that we could find out. And if we did, it might make it a lot easier to help that person get off that drug than if we just simply try to take it away from them. Taking it away tends not to be successful. Yeah. We know that doesn't work, and that's true. And I think weight loss is a perfect example of that but then there's a third step to this too that you mentioned well the third step actually you 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 got a step ahead of me the third step is to get to that meaning right we we start off with some compassion for what that person's experience is we go to trying to listen to their actual experience not our theories and our ideas and the last thing is to look for that meaning that intelligence built into that pattern and, uh, and then help that person sort of integrate, if you will, or make better use of that intelligence than the pattern that's currently uh, operating. Well, in the book, now we can get to the book because this is what you should do. Maybe we should, we'll, we'll go, I don't know if we're going backwards or what, but <laughs> we'll give examples because what Dr. Phil doesn't do this, doesn't find the meaning in the behavior, or that's what you say. I hope Dr. Phil isn't listening, but um, <laughs> it, he does really the opposite, and, and um, you give a couple, you give an example, I like this example because I did a lot of hospital social work and worked with caregivers, and that's one example you give, uh, Dr. Phil had, I guess, a, a couple on his program of a couple who where the husband was very, very sick, I think he either had a liver transplant or needed one, and the right. wife was had really just had it, taking care of him, being the caregiver, and you give an example of Dr. Phil's advice as not being what we should do, Let, let's talk about that that example. I'm, I'm wearing the example, right, there's a couple out on the show, and the, and that's right, the man had some kind, I think it was a liver problem. Very um, sick. Right, he was, he was sick for some period of time, I think it was years, and, um, and she had been, you know, slowly uh, giving up some of the things that she liked to do in her life, as a good, loving friend, partner would do, 
and taking care of her husband, but over time grew to be less open to, more resistant to, uh, beginning to be resentful of how her life was wrapped around the illness of her partner. So she starts to ask herself, am I an insensitive person, so to speak? And she goes to Dr. Phil and he says, yes, right? You're, you are you're, insensitive. You're, you're worse than that. You're, you're, awfully, you're awfully insensitive. I can't remember what his words were, but they were a very strong condemnation. In a sense, she diagnoses herself, you could say, right? I had insensitivity problems, right? And he says, yes, you do, but never looks at, the, at different possibilities about why insensitive, what, what is she doing that she's calling insensitive? And, if, and I've had many clients, and you sounds like you have also in this area, especially in the, in the giving and the service industries, where people get burnt out in ways. So they're not insensitive. If we actually looked at it, they might be tired. They might be burnt out. They may not be able to continue to give at the expense of at the sacrifice of certain things that they need in themselves. So, uh, so I talk a lot about that in the, in the chapter, why that person might have uh, quote-unquote good reasons. They're not about insensitivity. It could be genuine needs of hers that also might help her flourish, might help the relationship flourish. Um, and then I also say something about gender, because uh, as, as, as you know, and I'm sure many of your listeners know, telling a woman to be more sensitive, I think can be insensitive, right? <laughs> because yeah. as a culture, uh, especially in the caregiving areas, there are many women who have made many sacrifices, um, like I was talking about the woman in the diet situation before, and telling them yet again to be more sensitive, they should be more listened, more open, more giving up of their lives for someone else, may not consider enough. For some women, fine, but may not consider enough. The cultural context of a woman saying, I'm going to come into a relationship and give up lots of my uh, my uh, my life interests. And that's so probably words, less true today. But yeah, ahead. I think that's a great example. And, of course, caregiving is, and besides, you know, we talk about weight loss, but caregiving is a huge issue today that people have to contend with. Obviously, people living longer, women taking care of children, and then also taking care of their older parents. Um, and then it just fits into that women's mentality, well, I've got to give, give, give. To the point right. where they can, as it, you say, or I guess this is what you're saying, that if they keep doing that, that's really kind of the unhealthy aspect of their behavior. Because then, they, then when one keeps giving and you don't have it to give and you get angry, uh, you're not a really a good caregiver. Uh, you're not helpful to yourself or anyone else in the family or the person you're supposed to be caring for. So what you're saying is like, say in the Dr. Phil case, this person should separating and realizing they can only give so much and perhaps doing things that are healthier for the caregiver will in the long run help everyone, including the caregiver who will be stronger and better able to cope with herself or and the person they're caring for? That's yes. Well 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 said. Yes. Before we before we criticize a person or put them in a public scene like on a TV show and potentially shame them for being insensitive, we might want to say to them, I'm being a little sarcastic, we ought to say to them, maybe direct um, tell me about what you're calling insensitivity. Give me your, can you please tell me what your experience of insensitivity? Well, sometimes I think I should take care of this person and I don't. Tell me about what that's like for you. If, if we did that, in very short order, you would hear a person having an inner conflict. That's what she's saying she has. One part of her says I should be more giving, otherwise she wouldn't call herself insensitive, and some part doesn't want to give. We want to get to know that part. Is that a mean, lousy, cold person, or is that a person who has needs that ought to be considered, probably the latter. Right? 
are you saying, David, that we tend not to in this pop psychology stuff? We don't see ourselves, maybe I'm just repeating it, but we don't see ourselves in the context of our families, of our communities, of the culture in which we live. We kind of just treat this individual person. We want them, you know, that as an individual person, I guess, and look at their problem as an individual rather than in the context of the group that they belong to. Such, such a huge thing, you know, in... in um... Salvador Mnuchin, some people say, is the is the father of um, family therapy, and he said that in a family system, and I think this could hold true in cultural systems, in the family system, there is often an identified patient. That's the person that everyone says has the problem. They send that person to therapy. Let's say it's Johnny. He's 14 years old, and he's acting out or something like that. And Salvador Mnuchin said, it's very possible that the family has a problem, not Johnny. Johnny's just the one who's manifesting a symptom. So, for instance, I once had a, uh, a, a woman and her uh, come to me, and she said, uh, my daughter is acting out. And I said, what does she do? And she said, she breaks things, right? She sometimes takes things off the hutch, expensive items and dishes, and breaks them. And uh, I said, that's really interesting. Let me, and we talked for a little longer. And I said, let me le- recommend an exercise to you. I said, go to a, 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 a garage sale and buy some cheap dishes that you could break. And take your daughter, she was 13, take your daughter somewhere where you could smash dishes. And I want you to pick up one and say something that would make you want to throw a dish. And then throw one and smash it. And then give your daughter one. And do this together. Right? <laughs> let's join her. I call this a love-based approach. Before we try to get her to stop, let's find out what's going on, but let's do it in a way that's not hurtful and expensive, etc. And she came back the next week, and she said, something amazing happened. I said, what's that? She said, my daughter had a very hard time throwing the dish. So as soon as we made it conscious, right, mm-hmm. she had a very difficult time. She had actually a hard time saying, I'm upset, with this and that in my, in my household. The daughter couldn't complain and say things that she was upset about with the way her parents were getting along. So actually asking her, so she actually needed help to quote-unquote break a dish. That means to say something that might be strong, that might be powerful. So instead she broke dishes. She needed to learn how to quote-unquote break dishes. Not literal ones, right? But she needed help and practice. So before we take the daughter get the daughter to stop doing it, we ought to find out what she's doing. That's the one message. But the second is the, 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 the breaking dishes had a lot to do with the family and the parent's relationship, not the daughter. So if we bring her in and correct her, right, we've yep. corrected a person but not a system. Yeah, I think uh, you and Salvador Mnuchin are geniuses because I, I think that, the, you know, the family, family therapy, system therapy, I think actually as you're describing it, that is where it's at. Families project their own their own stuff onto the identified patient because nobody wants to really talk about, as you described, about what's going on or the pain or the hurt or we're always trying to cover up and make things. We want to be happy. That's another piece of this, isn't it? We always want to pretend that we're happy or that the family is happy and so we don't talk about the stuff that's bothering us. Um, But that's a good example. So what about, do we want to bring, we only, we don't have that much more time left. What about Dr. Phil? Do we want to bring him into this more in terms of what not to do? (laughs) Um, If I were to give a person, I mean, I think I've implied it, but I think if I were to say to people uh, two things, uh, a quick quick tip, so to speak. One is be as aware as you can of your inner criticism because a lot of us think that that discipline means disciplining, right? I mean, punishing ourselves. And I understand that we all do it. I do something I don't like, and I think, why did I do that? But that kind of why did you do that 
question. It's not just a question. It's a self-insult. Uh, and I understand that I do that and everybody does it. But if we think that's going to lead to changing a, a pattern, I should stop talking to them. I should stop calling this person. I always get hurt. I should stop these kind of relationships. I don't like them. Great ideas, but the criticizing oneself for getting hurt or continuing certain patterns very rarely helps a person, almost always perpetuates the pattern. So I would say, please be careful, folks, with yourselves. Uh, self-criticism doesn't help. Caring about how you feel after your self-criticism much more likely to help you. And then the second thing I would say is take interest in what you do. That means treat yourself like a subject, not an object. Ask yourself, what is it like to be doing this? And, in, and if you can get your ideas out of the way, you'll find out some incredible things about yourself. That's good advice. And I think we can find more of your advice, David. On You blog for psychology today? Yes, I do. Do you do this every day or once a week, or how do we get to your blog? Um, if you went to, well, a couple of ways. One, if you went to my website, which is talkingbacktodrphil.com, <laughs> and the doctor is DR abbreviated, so talkingbacktodrphil.com, you would find excerpts from my book. You would find links to uh, Psychology Today, other places where I write. You would see, be able to listen to radio shows, see some video videos of me uh, talking, uh, doing some t- television, etc. So there's lots of resources there. Um, if, if you wanted to just go straight to Psychology Today, you could just Google Psychology Today and then David, my last name is B-E-D-R-I-C-K, like Bedrick, and then you would find uh, a whole bunch of articles, some on weight loss, some on addiction, some on violence, uh, a, a big range, some on race and racism, a whole range of topics. And you'll find a JD beside your name. I think I mentioned that earlier. You're an attorney. That's a whole. I, I didn't even get into that. I wanted to ask you how you started out as an attorney and ended up as a psychologist. Because I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's a whole story in itself. I know it. I, I, I love to tell. I actually started off as a psychologist, and and uh, oh. and uh, and long, I won't go through the story. It'll be too long. But I was always thirty seconds. In, go ahead. I was always interested in social justice, and I really wanted to. I'm a learner. I'm, I'm either teaching or, or learning or both. And I decided once I would apply to law school, I got offered a, a partial scholarship, and I thought, well, I'll try it for a year and see if I can marry it with the other things I'm doing and still be able to keep up the law school. And anyway, I got pretty close enough to finish. I actually graduated top of my class and and uh, practiced uh, mostly in um, in poor neighborhoods, helping them with uh, custody issues and, and family issues that they couldn't afford to. Yeah, well, so you really did kind of marry, and not kind of, you did. You married the two, your interests as a you know a lawyer and a and a therapist but we have to say goodbye it was great great talking to you and talking back to Dr. Phil alternatives to mainstream psychology David Bedrick and you can go to his website as we mentioned before and you can um watch for his blogs on psychology today thanks so much for being on the show this morning thanks Catherine really appreciated your style yeah. Great talking to you. Bye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you have been listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I uh, hope you enjoyed the show. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.